Greetings. This episode takes a little bit of patience and understanding, probably by the listener. But in turn, an episode like this is very rewarding. So this episode is a question and answer session from the 2021 meeting of the Albert Camus Society. So papers have been given and all the papers uh, that the, generated the questions in this segment are available uh, as other podcasts here on Albert Camus Radio. And I might suggest you listen to those and then conclude with this episode where all the scholars that took part in the 2021 Albert Camus Society annual meeting, ask questions of those um, experts that gave their papers to the panel. So enjoy, wade into this and hear the exchange. For me, this is often where the most growth in Camus studies takes place because the scholars are pressed on their findings, conclusions, evidence, and expand it or explain it further. And they find holes in their research or holes in their argument. And those are then supported and reinforced. And we move forward with a new understanding of Camus or sometimes even dismissed. And we find that that is a dead end in Camus studies. So enjoy this very special episode. For uh, Stephen, actually. Um... So, um, like you said, there seems to be no direct relation between Coates and Camus, uh, given the quote that you gave of uh, Coates never having read uh, Camus. Uh, so, in terms of evidence for an indirect relation between the two, um, are there any authors in the area of Black existentialism uh, that you're thinking of that might tie Albert Camus uh, and codes uh, together. So basically two ways to strengthen that relation is um, to find some evidence for influence of Albert Camus on the black existentialists and the influence of the black existentialists on, uh, on codes. So those are two uh, ways to approach that. Are there any authors that spring to mind that's a great question and and um let me let me say two things um one is um i didn't mean to affirm the thesis that Coates was influenced by camus i said i hoped that he was but um I, i'm not that's not the point of my 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 presentation I, um, it would make it all the more striking that there's that we're so there was so much overlap, you know, um, and then you wonder how that could happen, you know. Um, so I, I I didn't and don't mean to commit myself beyond hoping to to such an actual influence. That said, I did look. I did look. I, I'm far from being a master of black existentialist thought, which which I really only discovered about a month ago. Um, but I I bought a book on it. Um, from Amazon, of course, um, and I checked the index and I checked every single reference to Camus in the book and none of them, none of them um, shed any light on any possible connection between Camus and Coates. Um, in fact, I have to be honest, I don't know how highly respected Coates is among um, African-American philosophers. Um, 
I don't know if you're aware of this, but Coates never graduated from college. He had two years at Howard University. Um, he left to move to New York City and try to make a living for himself as a blogger. That's a hard thing to do. And amazingly enough, it worked. And his career took off and he was hired by the Atlantic Monthly. And he sort of self-taught after that uh, with respect to uh, intellectual scholarship. Um, and there are um, eminent black thinkers like Cornell West who looked down their noses at him for not being a real intellectual. I think they're full of shit myself, pardon my French. Um, I think he's an extraordinarily bright guy, um, but he is mostly self-taught and that occasionally shows in some rough edges in his, his intellectual work. Um, so the reason for the lack of mention of a connection between um, him and Camus is that he's ignored in the black existentialist works that I've come across. Um, and you make of that what you will. Uh, second point, and I don't, I don't mean to monopolize. Um, I have a friend um, at Slippery Rock University um, who's really into black existentialism and who is friends with himself, an eminent black existentialist named George Yancey. Um, I don't know if anybody knows that name. He's one of the better known black philosophers these days. He's got about four or five books out. All of them connect um, black thought and the black struggle for racial justice with existentialism, especially to Sartre, I should say. Um, and um, so I asked Tom if he knew of any uh, connections. And Tom had actually mentioned Camus himself a few times in talking about Yancey's work in a paper that was published in a book on Yancey's work. And Tom sent me his paper like last month. And Tom looked hard for me and said, no, I got nothing. There's nothing there. So in terms of good evidence for a direct influence, nothing. Uh, um, in terms of a striking parallel between um, their, their sets of works, um, I say it's there, um, but if that's puzzling, uh, I'm, I'm puzzled too. So thank you for your question. Yeah, great answer, thank you. I have a question for Gina mm -hmm. or kind of a comment if, if it's okay for me to do that. Gina, I just wanted to say, I've read Exile in the Kingdom several times. Um, I found the stories um, when I read the book, uh, um, not terribly inspiring, but you have given me a new light. I, you know, you saw things that never even crossed my mind <laughs> about connections with the stranger um, and um, um, symbolisms that you know, I just, I didn't think of, no, I'm not a literature person, even though um, Peter stuck me in this literature part of the, the conference, um, and I'm glad he included me at all. Uh, um, but thank you. I really, I learned so much. And you're going to make me go back and read that book for the third time sometime in the, the new year. Great. <laughs> um, I'm going to, yeah, I had the, the other one was um, Lee Mue that I was uh, wanting to talk about as well. So yeah, hopefully um, another time. <laughs> good, good. Thank you. Can I jump in here and, and say I was also wanting to ask a question of Gina with regard to um, your point that or your argument that Janine's relationship to Algeria is symbolized by her relationship to her husband Marcel mm -hmm. and um, yes. there's that that starry night scene where she uh, is in ecstasy with the stars right and and so how would you compare 
your your thought, uh, your argument with kind of her communion uh, with yeah. that very rural Algeria in the the desert night. Yeah, I mean, the relationship with her husband, I haven't fleshed out as much as her relationship with Algeria. Mm. Um, you know, that's, it's actually something that as I was rereading again, that I kind of thought, oh, hold on, how did I not see this before? Um, so it's definitely something that I want to look into. Um, but the, yeah, like the specific scene of this Sorry, I also just got my um, English version because I was only working on a French version until yesterday because all my books are still in Chicago and still up north. Oh, no. Um, yeah, no, it's been crazy. Um, getting used to the new library. This is, um, we'll have to have a look at this again. This is near the end. Yeah, and, and it's an orgasmic scene. It's a... Right, right. This is, yeah, this is the second scene that I talk about where it's like the, this is like the infidelity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So there almost seem to be two Algerias. Definitely. Yeah, this is it. I think um, the the Algeria, um, either way, like this, the Algeria that, you know, she kind of like with the nostalgia, it no longer exists. And I think also like the Algeria that the Pierre Noir like then want for the future also doesn't exist, right? I think that that's, I mean, that's really like where I'm coming from with the argument is that, um, you know, and I think this is also what Camus is realizing at this time. I mean, it's not really so much about his silence. I think that actually, like, you know, we all kind of then realized that he was right um, in what he said that, you know, it wasn't really that he didn't support independence is that it needed to be done differently. Right. And it was like, how do we create this space for Noir in Algeria? Because obviously, um, if there was going, if the war was going to continue, you know, as it did um, with this revolution and then like all this mass exodus, um, you know, back to France, where they also were not welcome. So I think that this is, you know, this is kind of what we see with with Janine, like she's struggling with her marriage, but also like in relation to where she is. Um, so, yeah, there's there are two Algerias. And you know neither of them really exist. Um, I don't know if that's <laughs> like really a very good answer to your question. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, in relation to the to the marriage specifically, um, like that wasn't. I mean, that was just like one kind of small uh, part that I was really looking at um, today. But like I said, it's it's not something that I've really fleshed out. Um, it's more in relation to like the country and the piano art experience mm -hmm. and existence and the whole like myth at the time. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That's that makes sense. I have a, I have, I too have a question for Gina. Um, do you see, and do you see Camus, or do you think Camus sees himself as a male version of Janine? Yes. Like. <laughs> that alienated, you know, the way you put it, it was a great reading of of the adulterous woman, where, you know, Marcel stands for France, and and I think it's too hard, it's too difficult to think of Francine as being Janine. I mean, there are ways. If you look at, I think if you look at the relationship, Janine and Marcel's relationship in purely 
amorous elements, depending on how you want to, how you want to define amorousness, whether it's marriage or sexual attraction. I think that is very much a Camus Francine marriage. But I wonder if the, the colonial identity that you postulated for Janine is very much or can be embedded in Camus' own insecurity with his own kind of placement in between those two worlds, between, you know, the French and the Algerian. Definitely. And I think actually that's why he he picks like a female protagonist this time. And like a lot has been written about the female protagonist. Um, you know, I, I actually had to cut that whole section out um, because some critics, um, you know, critique him for his representation of this woman because she's not like Marie in um, L'Etranger, for example. You know, she's not this femme fatale. She's taller than her husband. You know, so there's this whole thing about her stature. Um, you know, there's the insinuation that she's, um, you know, tall and strong. Um, like there was something about her, you know, about her figure and maybe like her appearance generally anyway, um, that it's very different than like this stereotypical, um, like female representation. So I think that that like alone, like that physical description of her, um, like that is obviously like perhaps more masculine. Um, but I think, you know, so I think that, that there's probably, but definitely yes, with her whole, um, um, like with, with the, the, the piano noir myth, definitely. Um, I think it, like she um, embodies more of his, of Camus' um, uh, estrangement himself with Algeria than Marcel does, yes. And it's it, Christine Margarison, I think, who's, I, I, I mean, I had, I had some issues with her, her um, <laughs> critique of Janine's character as well, but that's one of the, the, the scholars that I know that has talked just a little bit about that, but I, like I said, like I, I, I was going to talk about that if I was just discussing the one story. But. I've got a question for Peter. I think he deserves a question too. Do we have time? Well, Simon, I think, had his hand up. Oh, I'm sorry. Go, Simon. Yeah. Yeah, I've got my hand up in the corner, Stephen. Hello, Simon. <laughs> be, re be respectful of the protocols. Unbelievable. Oh, jeez. Oh, Always. Yeah, uh, well, if I could get words in edgeway, Steve. Bloody hell. <laughs> <laughs> Joking, of course. Um, uh, it's interesting uh, uh, thinking about um, this is uh, directed for Gina. Thinking about Camus in his early works, um, like his early essays, uh, which he mentioned. I mean, they're very like erotic writing where he's consummating his love for the world. Um, the wet carob trees or almond trees, they smell of semen when he walks onto the street. Uh, um, he, uh, there's also a bit in his, uh, in his notebooks about, um, it's a sketch, it might not necessarily be himself, but it's a man who goes, he's so in love with the world that he goes out onto the balcony and stands there and, uh, and unleashes his love for the world, which is very similar to uh, uh, Janine when she has her adulterous moment. And it's interesting that also Camus says about how you know, he looks back through his writings and there's fewer and fewer references to the Algerian countryside or whatever. And uh, it's interesting that he does pick um, a female character and explicitly uh, mentions the, the adulterous uh, relation on it. So presumably she's being uh, committing adultery on her husband. 
and that Camus refers in, I can't remember which one of the essay, I think it's a note somewhere, that the world is like a, a mistress who stands mm. uh, with her arm round his shoulder in the street or whatever. And um, I just think it's, it's, you do have in The Stranger the fact that, you know, uh, the French Algerians there, like uh, um, Raymond, he doesn't fit in with the environment. He's not a good swimmer, he's not whatever, but there are Algerians that, that fit in. So this deliberate positioning of Janine and the explicit reference to the sort of um, adultery is, it seems that it's not that Camus fallen out of love with the Algerian countryside or whatever, but that it seems to be like an inappropriate relationship mm -hmm. and one that he's cast like as a woman rather than uh, as a man, that it's improper in some way to, uh, for a French Algerian Pierre Noir to engage in a relationship with a French Algerian country in the same way that the, the renegade as well is uh, completely doesn't fit in with uh, his environment, but also that in the growing stone, we do have the interesting myth there, the, the myth that the, the native people in some way, they're, they're closer to the earth and that they're more sort of animalistic. And that's why, um, I forgot his name, the main guy from, uh, from the growing stone, Dara, that he doesn't fit in and he's actually asked to leave from the, uh, from the celebrations that he's involved in, which again are very erotic sort of um, images. And so basically having just thrown all, all of that out there, um, just yeah, another wanted, thing. Is, um, yeah, go ahead. Well, I just want to, yeah, I'll just please proceed. I just want to hear your, your thoughts. Yeah, on no, it. um, another thing though that I thought about, I mean, it's not really it, it, that's why I haven't really again like fleshed all this out, especially in relation to the title, um, you know, and the adultery, um, aspect or this adulterous, um, term that's used in the title, and yeah, um the whole idea of a mistress, but in terms of the silence that's in a lot of these stories, um, I actually, um, I thought about his mother, Camus mother, um, who also like didn't speak, right? And so, or like, you know, this was um, an issue. And so in some ways, um, you know, he's he's speaking for her, right? This is this kind of like, well, what's happening because he's really concerned. It's that's kind of also why I started with that quote about like, you know, it being misinterpreted. But either way, you know, he cares about his mother, right? This was his concern that she was there. And so he did go back to visit her, but this was always this, you know, and then we see that in the premier um of how he kind of, you know, these travels um are going back. But yeah, so yeah, I think there's a lot with it with the female character. Um and yeah, I have to go back and look at the notebooks. Thank you for reminding me about that section. Yeah, where he goes out to the balcony. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just just to add to sort of extra fun to put it. Is, it's interesting with the uh, the the, uh, the silent ones, the the one about the strike. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the the others are very sort of erotical, sexual. I mean, Peter did a talk two or three years ago. About the homoeroticism of the uh, of the guest, and um, there has been like criticism of the collection of essays um, that they seem to be a bit thrown together, and there isn't um, such a strong theme, or you're struggling to find a theme. So, um, and the, the the silent ones or whatever is perhaps his least uh, successful short story. 
Um, yeah, I, I know, and that's why I definitely done. include that one. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Well, just also just from like a French perspective about this strike and I don't know, culturally, um, but yeah, this there's still this idea of silence that I'm really um, interested in, um, but able to speak because that's, yeah, I mean, it's just really related to his politics at the time. Um, and, you know, like everyone wanted him to make a statement and I really think that this collection is his statement. Steve, you have a question for me? I do, if there's time. Um, and uh, I guess what I'm wondering, Peter, uh, given your interest in empathy, um, is whether you have um, found it in, in the rebel, um, in particular, I mean, there, if memory serves, there's this opening passage about how the, um, even though there's this individualistic side of, uh, of confronting the absurd in the myth of Sisyphus, it's more collective in the rebel. You know, we question together, we revolt together. Um, it's no longer what I do, but what we do. That suggests empathy, or at least it suggests what I was calling before solidarity. Um, and I know Camus was criticized for the individualistic character of the early absurdism. And I, it seemed to me that he was going in a direction of solidarity and empathy quite, quite deliberately in, in um, The Rebel. And I wondered if you had been sort of thinking in those terms too. I haven't gotten to The Rebel yet. Okay. So I, 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 I'm trying to... I'm trying to go in chronological order. I know last year my paper was on the plague. So um, this is all, I mean, as, as some of you guys know, this is, this is part of a, um, a bigger monograph project with Brill um, is to look at Stein's empathy in all of his works. And it's just kind of going through chronologically and looking at empathy in, in the novels and then the short stories and then the plays. I, I figure that as far as when it comes time for me to sit down and, and reread the plague, you know, from this empathetic lens, um, I suspect it's gonna be there because I've always, I have always looked at um, the just assassins as being the political play, the political play with how does how do we how does Camus address the absurd within the realms of society as well as the individual mesh together at the same time in a moment of rebellion or in a moment of revolution? And it's like, well, in order to do that, I kind of have to do. I think I would have to go back and read, you know, obviously reread the play. I'm teaching it this semester, um, not next week, but the following week. We get back from Thanksgiving. And then it's like, well, that'll be fresh in my mind. And then it's, okay, let's blow through, let's blow through, not blow through, let's read The Rebel and see where, you know, the literary work meshes with the philosophical work. So I suspect, I suspect it's there um, because if you have questions or different levels of empathy in the just assassins, whether it's the, in, you know, individuals or the collective whole, you know, for the bigger picture, um, the bigger picture of revolution or rebellion, then it's got to be, 
in in the rebel there's no way that Camus is gonna separate those two and have one in the in the literary work but not in the philosophical work agreed agreed Thanks so that your... may be that may be next year's that may be next year's paper there you, you go know, <laughs> work out work out you know draft of chapters chapter drafts at the conference before you know polishing them and putting them you know sending them off to brill sounds good I have a a slight um, observation that might um, I think it's relevant to you know your work, Peter, and it's the curious way in which the word empathy uh, came into the English language at the beginning of the twentieth century, um, because I think it's it's very easy now looking back to think that, and not that you're doing this, but I, I've run into people who do this. They think, well, it's kind of always been around, you know. And Ada Stein uh, got lucky with her doctoral dissertation topic uh, that was pretty much assigned to her by Husserl. And um, he, 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 he thought that she could fill a vacuum in a lacuna in his own work. And uh, with this topic of Einfühlung, but it's interesting, I've always found that the word actually came, empathy came into English at the beginning of the 20th century to try to capture what uh, a number of German aestheticians were working on in like the last quarter of the 19th century. And it, it, it's this phenomenon of infeeling, <laughs> literally Einfühlen. Uh, and it, it comes from aesthetics because the, People like Theodor Lips, Lip, pardon me, Theodor Lip, Lips, and there are a bunch of them uh, by that name, and Robert Vischer, and uh, uh, the translator in question is a fellow named Edward Tischner, a psychologist. Uh, he's the one who was translating some of this work into English, and he came up with empathy as what he thought would be a good equivalent to uh, Einfühlung. And the idea is that there are certain, originally it was about objects, Right? In other words, you could go to an art museum or you could have an object adorning you know, your living space and then you would attach feelings to it. And I've never seen this example given, but I think that the best example is simply that if you look at how some children, uh, you know, very young children deal with their, um, uh, their teddy bears or their, you know, their, their plush animals uh, and, and they, they regard them as having feelings. Right. And of course, we know that that they don't. I mean, they're just stuffed animals. They're, they're like they're unfeeling objects. Right. But um, but, it, but it's more than them having meaning or significance. Right. Say in the form of a gift or something. Uh, many children treat them as though they have feelings. <laughs> and, and this is the phenomenon. Right. That that is that that, that they were trying to capture with empathy. And so um, Husserl picked up on it because he was interested in the problem of how to get beyond uh, me, myself, and I in the constitution of the objective world. So he, his direct interest was not actually, Husserl's was not, at least originally it was not, in um, uh, uh, like connecting up with others or you know, uh, having some sense, understanding others, right? It, it was actually for him, uh, I hate to say a prop, <laughs> That would be to you know put it down too much, but but it, it was a necessary step 
uh, a necessary piece of glue that he needed to get from my subjectively valid world to an intersubjectively valid world, right? And that, that was the main motive on his part for like getting Stein to work on this, right? And he punished her for it because when her dissertation was finished and he gave her the grade of summa cum laude for the doctoral examination in August, 1916. Uh, and she had every reason to expect that he would publish her you know, very distinguished dissertation in his yearbook for uh, philosophy and phenomenological research. But he demurred, right? And, and, and the rationale that he gave her was that she, she was anticipating things that he was working on in his um, 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 work on ideas two, right? Ideas one had appeared in 1913. So, you know, <laughs> she did the pioneering work and she took it, she ran with it. Uh, he wouldn't publish the, you know, the, the problem, some problem der Einfühlung, you know, the dissertation. And she took it in a totally different direction because she actually made the problem, the problem of how to understand others, what goes on uh, when we try to understand each other, right? And where this question about the constitution of the objective world is like completely, I mean, it's there in Edelstein, but that's not really her major concern as it was for Husserl. So I was thinking that, you know, and of course the, the Camus connection would be uh, worth looking into here too, because I mean, Camus' criticism of, you know, the whole phenomenological concept of constitution is that it is a form of philosophical suicide. So, but I think he would be a lot more sympathetic to where Stein took empathy than where Husserl wanted to go with it, okay? And the ultimate irony, of course, is that in the year in which The Stranger did appear, 1942, that was the year in which the person who made the problem of empathy, you know, gave it pride of place in the 20th century. That was the year she was gassed in Auschwitz. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's like 1942, right? August 9th. So it's like, poof. I mean, there's a lot there in other words, right? The, the, the curious uh, intellectual history of this concept and, and how different people were doing different things with it. And, uh, um, and, and Stein, though, in the end, was the one who made it what it is today. Right. So that's that's one thing that, you know, in in researching the problem of empathy, you know, Stein's dissertation and what Husserl makes of it in just a few paragraphs in ideas, too. Um, and then knowing the history that, you know, she had again, you're right. She had absolutely every right to think that he was going to publish her dissertation and it's kind of the one fault that I have with, with Husserl that the optics don't look good because it really looks like you used her as, yes, she was your PhD student, but the optics are that, that she, that you used her as a research assistant, you got yeah. what you needed out of her. And then, yeah. and then when you, when you but, look at like, she left him. <laughs> well, right, right, right. She left she, him. <laughs> no, you're right. That's and right. she did. And, and that's uh, one moment. And, you know, if Kim were here, she would be, yeah. you know, she would be, yeah raising her fist saying yes you know go Edith go and I I agree mm -hmm. yeah. you know I I agree with it completely um mm -hmm. no it, it, it it's it is incredibly incredibly fascinating mm -hmm. you know and looking the, at the relationship 
the the people who are doing the Husserliana volumes today, uh, an addition of ideas too did appear in 1952 with the so-called interventions of Edelstein right in the text. And I have it over there on the shelf. The new edition is about to appear any time now, probably you know 2022. And all of her contributions have been taken out to get back to the pure Husserl, okay, of ideas too. So, I mean, th there will be, you know, massive notes, right, in the in the annotations indicating, but but that's what you know that that that's what was done. It was it was um, expurgated, right? Expurgated to get back to the original Husserl, right? So, for the new edition of the Husserliana uh, ideas too. So it's a real, you know, it's like. Very, very complex turns of events again and again. Are there any other questions or shall we break for lunch? Oh. Lunch. Well, it's actually dinner time uh, over here. Yeah. So we're breaking for dinner. <laughs> it's well, almost dinner time here. <laughs> well, shall we shall we reconvene in 45 minutes? Good. All Thanks, right. everybody. Thank you. Good. That would be good. Thank you, everyone. Yeah. Yes. Yes, in 45 minutes. Okay, good. Mm -hmm. A fabulous live version of how scholarship comes apart. Starts a little bit, I think, rough to hear. You got to get in the groove of it. Then ends with the scholars breaking for lunch at that point. But it's such a nice way to actually sort of eavesdrop or even better to be present where the very top shelf frontline Camus studies are being produced. This will eventually, a lot of this work will eventually end up published in academic journals, probably the Journal of Camus Studies. Um, and then from there, enter mainstream thought about how we view Camus in uh, the 21st century and moving forward. So um, very engaging session.